Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm talking with Babak Siavashi, Vice President and General Counsel of Vandural Industries, and he's recently wrote a thoughtful article on intellectual property and defense contracts, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Babak, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Very happy to be here, Eric. Cool. So I want to set up this conversation with the context as you did in your article. And so everyone always were talking about commercial industry, research and development is now outpacing. Government used to be over a third of total R&D, and now it's like 3%. But then the other side of the coin is also intangibles, right? The rise of intangibles. In past firms like Ford, most of the value of Ford was like in the physical equipment, the capital, everything on their their, uh, balance sheet and their earnings. But today, a lot of value is wrapped up in enterprise software, data, product design, these things that decorrelate from those traditional tangible goods. So can you just start with like software is eating the world? Bring us up to speed on this phrase and what's Andural's thesis behind what they're doing? Yeah, like the term software is eating the world comes from a blog post Mark Andreessen wrote in 2011. Mark Andreessen, a kind of venture capitalist who's been very influential in the business. And the point of his post was that a lot of things that we think of as hardware problems are actually under the hood software problems. And that post is borne out through the development of kind of Silicon Valley taking over many other industries that weren't thought of as as software industries. If you look at what Netflix does, what Google does today, what some of the large software companies do, Apple, of course, they're building hardware. And there's a reason why the iPhone was built by a software company, not by a phone company. There's a reason why the Tesla is built by the most advanced kind of consumer car we have is built by Elon Musk and not by Ford. And it's because really the underlying engine of a lot of these technologies are communications, software, et cetera. Even when the technologies themselves are physical things that you can touch, what makes them work and what makes them work well is this software backbone. So what does that mean? Does that mean you don't need great electrical engineers, great hardware engineers. No, you need all those things, but the design philosophy is more the software driven. Even the way you pick your sensors, the way you pick your communications modules and so on, it's very much software driven rather than hardware driven. So you need both great software and great hardware, but I think there's been a shift in the commercial space and kind of the software considerations taking more of a driver's seat and the hardware considerations following as opposed to the other way around. And so what that means in the defense sector is that traditionally in the defense sector, you've had shipbuilders and aircraft builders capturing most of the defense budget and making all the really cool stuff that all of us who like military technology are into. And we haven't seen the same shift we've seen in the commercial sector where you know those traditional hardware providers have been displaced over time by software providers or software-focused companies in the commercial sector. We have not seen that same shift in the defense 
sector. Instead, what we've seen is the same shipbuilders and tank builders and, and aircraft makers trying to do software, and they haven't done it well. And I think there's general consensus that that, that model isn't working. And so when we say software is eating the world, in my blog post, I started by saying, look, Mark Andreessen was right. Software is eating the world. But for some reason, that prognostication has just not extended to the defense sector. And I think my claim ultimately is that that's had some negative consequences or it's had some costs. And those costs are that the defense sector is behind the commercial sector when it comes to certain kinds of software-defined technologies. It seems like at Enduro, you guys are actually building out towards a lot more hardware. You guys have bought several companies like uh, Area One, their air launch effects. You guys have a unmanned surface vessel for Navy stuff. Did you want to just give us a little flavor of that? You also had a nice blog post at Enduro about building out like a factory. So did you want to just talk about how you're moving from the software into the hardware? Yeah. And I think it's this question of, we build a lot of things that look like hardware. We bought a, as you noted, we bought a, a robot submarine company called Dive. They're, they're awesome. We're integrating their products into ours. We bought Area I, which was an air-launched effects company, swarming drones coming out of Black Hawk helicopters, taking out air defenses. Those sound like hardware problems. They're not. Those are software problems. So what I mean by that is that the physical items, like my iPhone that I'm holding up, is hardware. And there's a lot of very innovative hardware and electrical engineering that goes into the development of an iPhone. However, what makes the iPhone kind of path-breaking, path-making, and interesting is the operating system and the software on board. And the same with air-launched effects. We're talking about autonomy. We're talking about uh, artificial intelligence. We're talking about sensing we're talking about networked effects. We're talking about dynamic rerouting of missions. We're talking about expeditionary capabilities that work at the edge. We're talking about edge computing, which doesn't need control from a command center. We're talking about true autonomy that doesn't require people with joysticks to build things that do those things, including to build hardware devices that do those things. You actually need very good software engineering. And you need to design those hardware devices with software in mind first. And yes, Underall on its face looks a lot like a hardware company. We build towers, we build drones, we build submarines, we build, we're going to build vehicles. We're going to be in every domain and the things we deploy are going to be hard. You're, they're going to be tangible and you're going to be able to touch them. But the way that we're distinctive and different is that these technologies are going to be software defined and hardware enabled rather than the other way around. Can you talk a little bit about how that software native aspect of your company actually makes you structurally different potentially than like a defense prime? You know, software firms tend to spend 10 times more on internal research and development, self-funded development type stuff than defense contractors. So I'd like you to comment on that, but also note that I remember seeing stats back in the 1950s where the aerospace companies were putting 20% of revenue to internal research and development. It just seems like that's falling apart. What's the difference today and why? maybe also why did the defense industry change over that time? Yeah, I mean, those are two, I think those are two separate but related questions. So I think inherently, if you're investing seriously in software development and you want to win on, on the strength of your software, then you're going to have the same kinds of capital expenditures, the same, not exactly the same level, but same order of magnitude of capital expenditures on mo mostly OPEX, on software than you would on hardware. So you're going to spend a lot of money developing software. 
And I don't think the Department of Defense has wrapped, and, and the traditional contractor base has wrapped its head around that. Then I think, why is it that in the commercial industry, enterprise software uh, companies, consumer software companies, that there has been this incredible investment in, in software development and software-related technologies, right? Communications, et cetera. The reason is because it's profitable, right? Like software is just very good business. And it's good business because it provides value to the end user. Uh, and there's, there's a virtuous cycle where we have companies that make incredible amounts of money selling products that everyone wants. And that creates an ecosystem where we have the best education system in the world for software engineers. And those feed into these companies and those companies feed into the demand and the demand feeds into the supply. And we have a virtuous cycle where a lot of people end up with better stuff. Uh, a lot of people end up rich, et cetera. And that is in a capitalist society, that's how things technology advances. That's one of the drivers of this thing. The market on the defense side is very different. There's really no reward for building good software. Historically, there hasn't been in the DOD. There's very few successful software companies in the Department of Defense that focus on defense software. And that's not because there isn't a need for good defense software. That's because the Department of Defense hasn't valued kind of these software capabilities and hasn't compensated people for, for delivery of, of that value. So then there's the second issue you talked about, which why, is the, why have the R&D investments in the Department of Defense gone down over time, the traditional base anyways? Look, I think there's a lot of answers to that. I think Ultimately, I personally believe that incentives are what drive behavior. I'm not someone who's going to say people are doing the wrong thing because they're bad or because they don't care about the It's not that. It's like the incentives are wrong. There's no incentive to invest your own dollars in R&D if you're one of the top five or six or seven defense contractors in the United States. I think it's like a pretty complex set of, of levers that make those incentives come out the way they are. I think they include some of these hardware issues. They include the fact that many of the large defense contracts are performed on a cost plus basis where you're actually rewarded for having the government pay for your R&D and the way indirect rates are, are paid out, like your R&D costs are also covered partially by the government. There is just, I think, some stagnation in the industry where it's just, there's not a culture of, of in my view, there's not the same culture that you see in equivalent growing industries in the commercial sector, where there's just incredible investment, incredible speed, incredible kind of dynamism, and that's reflected in the R&D rates. I don't think you see that on, on the, that culturally, even in the defense industry, outside of a few, some of the kind of newer venture-backed companies that like, like ours that you see out there. And really, I think outside of SpaceX, and, and a couple other companies like that. Who do you see in defense that's really inspiring people from a technological perspective? And I think the list is very short. And that's a bad thing for the US because military technology is inherently very cool. I mean, fighter jets, space planes, like we're talking about the, every kid who grows up and becomes an engineer like probably played video games and was probably paying for me. It was like Star Fox in these old games, but these. Star Wars games, whatever, these things should really capture the imagination. We should really have this very dynamic drive to build really cool things that achieve and serve like the purpose of national security, which there's incredible backing for and incredible consensus on. But we just don't have that. We have these kind of stilted and slow moving industry 
where you become an aerospace engineer at a large defense prime and you're working on one aircraft your entire career. It's just not exciting. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so that's part of what we're trying to change here. I know I'm a little bit off topic, but it does tie into the R&D question, right? I think in a dynamic industry where there's high incentives, high rewards for innovation, you will see uh, more R&D investment, more internal R&D investment from companies because there will be rewards for that investment. Being better, it's a true meritocracy, being better gets you rewarded and therefore there will, people will invest their own resources to, to come out on top. You said back there, DOD doesn't value software, but then if we want to get to that future that excites people intellectually, but also in the real world, it's going to have to be based on like software native competencies, I think is what you're saying. And within the defense, traditional primes, they have some internal R&D, but it's also expensed across their, their general administrative. So they get paid for that as well. And they're actually just paid, okay, how much labor did it cost you to do this? And that's the value. That's what I'm going to pay you. Whereas like for a non-traditional, and when we think of non-traditionals, usually they first build a product and then they sell it commercially. And so they've built in those margins and that IR&D kind of expectation. And then they can just sell that to government because they've already, you might have some minor modifications, but you've already built out the pricing model. And Dural, it feels a little bit different, right? It's like you guys are a company that's privately financed and building for government. So there's not going to be, I don't think you guys have commercial customers for your things that you can price out. They value it because it's the market and then you can sell it to government. So you, it seems like you guys are in a kind of weird space between the traditionals versus the, the commercial companies that boomerang to government and you guys are different. How do you think that impacts you in doing business with government? Yeah, and look, there's a lot to respond to there. And I think that you have hit the nail on the head in, in one sense, which is that, look, we're building commercial technologies that have at some level commercial applications and that can then be very easily modularized and, and put towards government use all the way to technologies that basically are using commercial and, and state-of-the-art technology, but are really for military use only. So we cover the whole spectrum. But you're right. And the, the reason that we, we trend towards that side of the spectrum where it looks like commercial tech for, for military use is because we think there is a white space and there's a need for that kind of technology. I mean, I think just having commercial software vendors who build like a, a, a word processing document and then oh, you can also sell it to the DOD. It's pretty tragic. That just only happened in the last 15 years. There's a long history, as you know, of the DOD trying to rebuild like dual use commercial software from travel software to word processing internal to itself. And those are disasters. I, I don't think most taxpayers know what's happened in that part of the world. And we've thankfully, I think, moved on for the most part from that kind of abomination. But we need to go much further. We need to have companies that have the same aspirations as us, which is to treat the DOD like we treat a commercial market, which is move fast, spend your internal research dollars to build something that you believe you have conviction is useful, and then to work with to sell the customer, in this case, the Department of Defense, on the value of that, and then to get rewarded commensurately for the value and to get a fair reward for the value that then creates this virtuous cycle of incentives where you grow by creating the demand, you create the supply, and you grow the market of, of companies that can uh, provide that value. 
And if you're just relying on the dynamic that you described, Eric, where we'll get commercial entrants into the defense market because they get to sell some of their stuff to consumers and enterprises. And so we can then like do our normal government thing, which is like really scrutinize their margins and stuff. You're just not going to get the outcome you want. You should actually instead, in my view, create incentives, financial and otherwise, for companies to get rewarded the same way they get rewarded in the commercial market for building advanced defense technology. And I think until we do that as a country and as a kind of department of defense, then we're always going to have this capability gap relative to others who do that. And it's very easy for other people to do this. We talk a lot about China, Russia as near peers who could do this. And I don't think they've done it as well as others think yet. But the point is that they could. It doesn't take a lot of industry to just reward people. It doesn't take a lot of smarts to just reward people who create good technology for the military and then incentivize more and more people to do the same. It's like a very basic thing you could do. And I do worry that our near peers and even our allies might leapfrog us technologically if they start doing this more effectively than we do. Yeah, totally. That seems to be one of the the things that we often forget that margins and profit are a reward for innovation and improvement in outcomes. But usually the market, like when I go and I buy something, it's this large interaction of different folks that kind of arrive at a price. And I'm almost like a price taker, but I contribute to that in a way. But for the government, when they're like, that's why commercial pricing is important, right? Oh, you're a commercial product. And so I don't need to think about what the value you're bringing me. The value has been determined by these market interactions. But if you aren't selling to the market, you're selling to government. Now you're saying the government itself is going to have to determine valuation of the product, what it's worth to them and a commensurate reward. And then they have to like think about either this is the price or what is your cost and what is a fair kind of profit. So how do you think government folks can actually arrive at that valuation? Is there an objective way or like, what do you think about that? So it's a really good question. And I think this is like a legitimate challenge, right? So I'm going to talk a lot. I'm going to say a lot of things that sound like I'm critiquing the current department or the traditional defense brace, but I fundamentally believe these are hard problems and that the solutions don't come easily. They involve changing incentives. And so one of the problems you've put your finger on is that let's say we all agree we need companies like like Andrew who are specialists in commercial tech to build military technology. We want collaborative missiles. We want whatever, counter air. We want kind of swarming drones, et cetera, that, with guns on them that do military things. We, we don't want some drone maker who makes commercial drones to just also sell us commercial drones. We actually want to create a new generation of companies that build military technology that's advanced and AI powered, et cetera. Let's say that's our goal then how do you determine what a fair price is for an artificial intelligence enabled drone that's a military drone because there's no market for that commercially and i think that's a good question i think the problem gets easier to solve if you create a market for those companies because then you will have market competition and so we're a little bit in a vicious cycle here where there's no market for companies like Anderil, you really have to be a weirdo to do what we're doing. You have to go raise incredible amounts of venture capital funds 
you have to decide that you want to work in one of the worst industries from an economics perspective in the history of mankind, which is the defense industry. And you have to really care about national security because why else would you do this? Why would you fight with government bureaucracy to make a buck if you don't have to? Only if you really care about this stuff. You just have to be a real weirdo to do what we're doing. That's bad for the country. It's good for us because the few weirdos who make it will make out really well. But it's bad for the country. So we have this vicious cycle where we don't have a market for uh, kind of advanced military technology. And therefore... There are very few players, and so there's less price competition, and there's more vendor lock-in, and so on. But ironically, if you just do the thing that seems scary as the Department of Defense and just give a few big rewards to a few high performers, what you will end up doing is creating a market. You'll create a market where there's going to be a lot more entrance because they see that there's actually this is actually good business to do this work. And those new entrants will create price competition and you'll have much, many more points of reference for what a fair price is. And you'll be able to run creative solicitation models like Bake Offs, or you could actually just act like a normal enterprise does, right? Because enterprise, enterprises operate many governments in many ways. So they, enterprise needs cloud. Cloud's not a great example because it's commoditized, but enterprises need very many bespoke kind of technologies. And this isn't rocket science, right? You can take solicitations for multiple people. You can run pilots. You can do bake-offs. There's a lot of ways to do this and then do price negotiation across different market participants. And in our experience, government agencies throughout DOD, many of them are innovating on this front and, and are doing the things I'm describing now and are, I think, getting fair prices and, and good technologies as a result. But there's still exceptions rather than the rule. Yeah, if you only have one big winner-take-all thing, you have an N of one. And I can't make any statistical inference from an N of one. So I, if I have a greater sample of alternatives um, upon which they're offering different prices and value points, now I can draw correlation. And yeah, the government almost like shoots itself in the foot right, with respect to this. What you end up with, right, is this, it's great. And I think the, the, the challenge for them is the only way you get to an N of more than one is by taking some risk. You're going to have to just make some bets on some companies, on some technologies that you're not used to making bets on. That is the only way you break that cycle, what I describe as the vicious cycle. There's no trick. There's no acquisition trick. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing. There's no cheat code. You just have to make the bet. It's going to be a leap of faith. If it doesn't work out, maybe there's a political consequence to you, but you just have to do it. And that's the only thing that will fix it. But then once you overcome that barrier... Once you have an N of 50, N of 100, then things start getting a lot better. And some of the conversations you and I are going to have on future podcasts, if we have an N of 50, N of 100, will be overtaken by events at that point. This podcast session was supposed to be about data rights, which is a lot of about like, the government's kind of concern with vendor lock-in. But data rights just don't matter if you have 50 options because you won't get locked in. You don't like one, you just go to the other one. Price is too high. Have another competition, 60 people are going to solicit, respond to the solicitation with kind of mature technology, and you'll be able to make like a really strong decision that's going to both support the taxpayer and achieve our kind of capability gap. So really, we need to break through that kind of N of one thing by taking some risks, in my view. You know, a friend was just commented to me yesterday and made me think about this, which was if the government tries to squeeze profits, right, they would say, if I cut a million dollars of profit, then that's a million dollars I can put to more capability. 
But then his point was, if you actually have a relatively large profit for a winning firm, then you'll have all this private investment. So actually, are you getting less military R&D by, by pursuing that? Which is you, a good you question. Are, right? <laughs> no, this is answered. I think there's very little, I would respectfully say to folks listening to this who believe that, that they should study basic economics. And it does not work that way. We have a great model for how to build a thriving industry that builds the best shit in the world. Just look around you. It, it, this has been solved and there's no reason. Obviously, the commercial sector cannot be analogized to military procurement in every respect, right? There's a lot of differences. And I think I go deep, pretty deeply into those differences in the piece. But there's a lot of lessons we can take. And yes, I think that managing the profit of firms that produce products for you is just not the right way to get the outcome that we want, which is a dynamic industry that creates the best stuff, the most advanced technology and so on. And, you know, I think actually like a good example of this is when you look at cost plus versus firm fixed price contracts, cost plus contracts give you very high degree of accountability at the level of each hour, right? Each dollar that the government spends, they know that 30 cents of it is going to your general administrative expenses and 25 cents is going to this worker's salary and another 13 cents of it is going to this and so on. So very high accountability at the micro level. Unfortunately, at the macro level, at the level of a project, we've seen this repeatedly, cost plus kind of contracts lead to cost overruns. There's weird kind of biases that that you, cognitive biases for, for sunk cost fallacies that you end up in because you spent five years with highly accountable kind of spending on a rocket ship or something and the contractor comes and tells you it's going to take us another five years to do it and all the incentives for the folks doing contracting and acquisitions is to give them a pass and let them do that again and you don't get the accountability at the project level that you do with firm fixed price contracts so a lot of these negative outcomes are a function of the mechanisms and the incentives that the DOD uses. And I think the last thing I'll say on this, because I want to really hit this point home, is that those mechanisms may have been totally fine for a hardware-focused world. Like, I actually think that if you're building an aircraft carrier, you want to do the thing that we who care about acquisitions often say is bad, which is define all the requirements up front, have very detailed instructions, and then hire the cheapest labor to put in the screws and hammer in the nails. That is probably how you should build an aircraft carrier. It is not how you build a software-defined thing, though. Software-defined thing, you want to get it to an MVP very quickly, and then you want to iterate over and over again and fail forward, to use the parlance, until you get to something that works operationally, that's useful to the end users. And it's a very different process. And the acquisition methodologies that are common in DOD from cost plus to the data rights and to the funding mechanisms and so on just are creaking under the weight of these needs for new technologies. So let's actually now start pivoting into the data rights and intellectual property. And again, this I think this has everything to do with what you're talking about, right? Like the old hardware firms, maybe the data rights things that DOD is coming out with or has had for a long time actually works. But does it actually fit this new breed of firms that the DoD is actively, you know, everyone's saying it up and down the line, they're trying to actively court these types of companies, but are some of the, the regulations actually at odds? So let's zoom in on the data rights regimes that the government has 
and and why they're ill-suited to these new types of you know software native companies you might if i step back and take a, a macro view first and then zoom in on the specific ones so i think that because i i think it's important to note that i i don't actually believe that acquisition reform is necessarily a solve here i think in the current acquisition rules as they exist today there is there are all the tools that we need to have a flexible data rights regime without any changes the problem is that those tools aren't being used and so my proposal is really to let's incentivize the use of those tools or let's make small modifications that make those tools usable so an example of this is I'm really talking about the three or four existing kind of templatized categories of data rights that exist in in the FAR in this piece. But of course, the FAR also lets you specifically negotiate any rights you want, pretty much. And someone could very reasonably say to me in response to peace, we can already do this. You just need a smart contract officer who's uh, willing to be nimble as top cover and can negotiate these specific rights you're talking about. That's true. I concede that. But that is not how things work in practice. In practice, there's an incredible amount of inertia be- behind these existing categories, the templatized way of doing things. And the proposal is let's create or let's pilot or let's experiment with another templatized category of rights that is more flexible and more accommodating of the needs of this software-defined world that everyone agrees we are moving towards. So w- with that context, I think the big picture kind of comment that I have is that the our current outdated approach is it's basically too coarse grained to protect the government from the things they care about, like vendor lock-in, which are legitimate things to care about. And they're too broad to encourage modern software companies to really invest in defense applications of their products. And in the piece, I go through the existing categories and talk through how they work and what the issues are. So happy to do that now if you want, starting with restricted rights. Yeah, definitely just get right into it. We could go through many areas of the the procurement rules where the DOD is just not doing what the rules say. It, it is from commercial preference to Title 10 and the preference for specifically negotiated rights. Those rules do not reflect what actually happens in practice. And I think this is well understood. Anyone who's spent any time working in this, at least on the contractor side, like they have this experience where they're like looking at the rules, then they're looking at what an acquisition agency is telling them. You're just doing this double take over and over again. They're like, what? But are you not reading the same thing I'm reading? And that is a very kind of, this is like kind of a, this is the experience everyone has when they start working in defense. And yes, I think the way you chip away at that doesn't have to be acquisition reform. It could be training. It could be many other things. It could be creating a few areas where vendors can punish agencies for not following their own rules that Congress enacted and that the president kind of signed. You do all kinds of things. But one thing you could do, and is is what I push on in the piece, is actually create something that's like easy to implement because it's already written out for you. And it's the default rule for this kind of acquisition. And then put the burden on agencies and acquisition officials to have to move away from that default rule that is by default correct, rather than put making the default rule something that's not good for software. Look, restricted rights, once you start looking at the existing templates for data rights, you very quickly realize that they don't make much sense for software. Restricted rights, and actually also government purpose and unlimited rights, 
the through line across them is they're very much focused on who funded a specific piece of the development of the software. And that makes some intuitive sense, but in part because software, it's pretty easy to write a line of code. Software, making good software is hard, but it's pretty easy to write a few lines of code. What, what you end up having is vendors who are very savvy and work often with the government, uh, both for software and hardware, they end up like self-funding some critical component of a bigger system that the government funded most of and, and claiming either restricted or kind of more vendor favorable rights for that piece of it. And this results in what the government complains about in their recent DOD report. They complain about Swiss cheese data rights where they, they paid a billion dollars to build some kind of system. And then one of the vendors like has some critical widget that they self-funded and they own that widget and they basically have them by the throat where they can upcharge the government or, or charge exorbitant sustainment rates or play hardball when other vendors need their data or their ICDs and so on. And that's a real problem. And that makes these rights, this kind of funding focused structure, not particularly good for the government in the sense that it doesn't actually achieve their vendor lock concerns. On the contractor side, it's not great because one, it's weird and it scares away people who aren't savvy enough to play these games because they're stuck dealing with that widget provider who's then not offering up the data that they would get from any other kind of enterprise where they were trying to build something that works with the widget. But also, I think what it what this funding-focused approach to data rights leads to is the government overcorrecting and structuring a lot of their solicitations to really discourage things that that result in, in, in proprietary data rights and really to structure solicitations from the get-go in ways that exclude companies that spent a lot of money on their IRAD building a thing and bringing it to the table because the government's really telling them like, no, you got to give everything up to, to play with us at the beginning of these solicitations. And you end up with the market dynamic that, that we were talking about before at the end of the day, which is instead of an end of five or 10 responsive solicitations to a military technology, you end up with an N of one, really. Yeah, you had a kind of nice story about that. You basically were saying, and I think a lot of firms have actually encountered this, where there's like a non-traditional, they do amazing on this kind of small pilot program. They're forced to give away their data rights as part of that little pilot effort. And then they end up losing on the major production contract. And so what happened? Like they feel like they got taken advantage of to a degree. Can you dive into that? And do you feel like that's actually happening to, to Andorra as well? Let's put a pin in that second question. <laughs> but you know, I tell a story in the piece about uh, a solicitation. It's a story that I've seen play out before, which is the government solicits prototypes for kind of new military technology that's software focused in AI or something. And a company comes to the table with a great prototype software that it maybe it derived it from its core commercial technology and it proposes to adopt it for military use. Let's say everything goes well. The government's impressed. They love it. The pilot goes really great. What ends up happening next is, sorry, I have to step back. So because of the dynamic we just described with the fear of Swiss cheese data rights, et cetera, the government will typically set these small pilots up in ways that really discourage vendors from withholding data rights. They basically say like, give us government purpose rights or, or unlimited rights. It's not exclusive. You can still use it for commercial. You're good. Yeah, but you and hear, so, that's the new guidance, right? They keep saying you need to get your IP strategy and rights as early in the process as possible. Exactly. That, that keeps being the thing I, I hear yes. from the cadre and others. Yeah, and that's 
that has costs that the government isn't internalizing. And so, and the costs are that you just scare away your vendors. But yes, so very early in these acquisition processes, the government is incentivized and encouraged by the cadre and by, by others and by DOD policy to maximize data rights or to protect their rights very early in the process. And so the vendor who ends up in good faith agreeing to do this work and to offer up their data rights at some point down the line, when the prototype becomes production, this is the scenario where the vendor did everything. They end up in this weird position where it feels to them like a bait and switch because the government comes and takes their data rights and structures a whole solicitation around it and then takes the most traditional looking, cheapest labor rate builder of things to, to build out the production capability. And I think there's two points I make at the end of that story. One is that that actually doesn't work. Like you're going to get worse outcomes doing that for a lot of reasons. One, they won't have the same expertise on software. Expertise actually matters, et cetera. But also the incentives are all wrong and so on. But that's point one. But point two is then that software provider that got bilked from the production contract goes out of business or never works for the government. But their friends, other people in the industry, they all see what happened. And the next time there is an interest in working on government tech, on military tech, they're just not going to participate. And so, again, we get stuck in that vicious cycle where you end up with a very small market incentive for firms to invest in R&D relating to military technology. And you have less competition and worse outcomes for the government as a result. Maybe... Not a lot of people are aware, but like for commercial data rights, non-traditionals now are blanket in the DFARS 212, I think 102, all non-traditionals can be treated commercially. That in my mind also means they could be given commercial data rights. Is that one happening Two, what's wrong with commercial? Is that another one of these kind of like templates that doesn't fit the need? Commercial data rights could in theory fit the need. And I think they work well for commoditized technology that that's truly dual use and that you're applying to the government. I think they're a somewhat awkward fit for military technology. So if I raise capital from a private investor and build software to target missiles in, a, in an intelligent way, okay, I self-funded it. I could have a commercial license uh, applied to it, but it, and the government could accept, there's nothing in the acquisition rules that would prevent a contract officer to accept those commercial data rights, but it, it is fundamentally weird, and the government, I think, is correct to think that it's weird that your missile targeting software has a commercial license attached to it. And so I think it's fine if people are willing to use those rights. They're extremely flexible. You can build anything you want in a license, but they're, they've been treated with distaste, I've found in my experience, by government contract officers, and, and not always for bad reasons. I think there's a broader point here when we mentioned the DFARS policies and so on, that the policies don't matter as much in practice as you might think, because there's a lot of ways that without breaking any laws, agencies can structure their solicitations from the get-go to, to get full data rights, to maximize data rights in case for any kind of solicitation that they're establishing. And a point I raise in the piece that's worth hitting on is that a lot of times there's huge trade-offs that are being made when the government does that, but those trade-offs tend to be invisible to the government agencies that are making them. So 
they might be maximalist about data rights very early in a solicitation process, but they're not actually measuring the cost of to speed to field, for example, because maybe they're going to get fewer uh, responses to their solicitation from companies that have built something already and that can field it quickly. Maybe they might, there might be cost to the number of companies and the types of companies that kind of participate. And again, they're not, in my experience, they're not making those trade-offs when they set up these data rights regimes like early in the process, especially when they're maximalist. And part of my suggestion in the piece is to force acquisition officials to at least document those trade-offs and to make them. And then at least we can hold them to account to their document. It still might be wrong, but at least we'll have some historical data. We can say, hey, look, you were maximalist about data rights in this software project or this software-defined project. And five years later, we have no fieldable technology. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. And at least we can have a case study to point to that ties, that has some causal connection between the data rights strategy and the outcome. Right now, we don't have any of that data. It's just, we're just, there's a lot of speculation going on. What you've talked about in the article and actually elsewhere, you actually, I think, say, and Durrell recognizes that government has legitimate needs for data rights and intellectual property, perhaps more, and you guys are perhaps more willing to provide those data rights than a traditional commercial company might feel comfortable doing. You, you do a good job. We've been talking a lot about how the government has been maximalist, like a little bit over aggressive in some respects, but you guys also recognize that need, that balance, that trade-off. And so you, you in the article, you went pretty nicely and you outlined some ways to think about where that trade space is. And so I just want to go down the line here and start with just like account for size. So of course, we always have this mixed funding rule. If the company funds the whole thing, restricted. If the government funds the whole thing, at least GPR, but probably unlimited. And if there's some mixed, then it's GPR, but GPR is actually a lot of rights for the government and and especially in the computer software world. So where is that line? Okay, not in the $1 million prototype phase, the government probably shouldn't be getting data rights there. Where is that line in terms of how big a contract or what is a production contract where your company is now, okay, we're willing to have those conversations and discuss that? I outlined five principles for what kind of levers you would want to be able to pull in in a new category of data rights. And one of them is this account for size lever. And so I think there's a lot of freebies here for both the government and contractors. The government doesn't actually care about data rights at the prototype phase where they're just like getting a sense of what's in the market. They want to see three or four or five or six players come in, show their wares, pick between them and figure out which horse they want to bet on based on that basic information. They they actually, the government wants to see as many players as possible. They don't want to set up artificial barriers to entry by having maximalist data rights. They're just doing that because they feel like If one of these goes to production, then we're screwed if we don't have the data rights. And so really you can, and and the same calculus happening on the industry side, right? Like industry players see the size of these production government contracts, programs of record and stuff. And most of them, in my view, would be willing to offer the government kind of reasonable and commensurate data rights for a large contract. I think what they what scares them away is that they're being asked to sell the farm at the very early stages of these solicitations because of the dynamics we described. And you could solve that by having a slide ruler where the data rights scale up with the size of the investment of the relative investment of the contractor and the government. And 
look, there's a lot of ways you could structure it. And I don't want to be overly prescriptive in, in what the exact ways are, but you could have something that's more like a bright line rule, like projects under 50 million or something or prototype projects and they have more vendor favorable rights. And if those product projects move to production contracts that are X dollars, maybe there's a middle tier that's more favorable to the government. And you can have gates where the government inures additional data rights as they cross through those gates. And those gates would be tied to the government's investment in the vendor and commitment to the vendor. Where I think that if the calculus for vendors was I get to uh, prototype and play and show my technology early on and reserve my data rights and, and the government and my competitors aren't going to free ride off of my technology in these early phases. But if the government picks me and commits to me for three, four, five years and, and 100, 200, $300 million, then I will be expected to give up some of these IP rights because the government has legitimate interest in protecting its military technology and having the flexibility to switch vendors after a certain amount of time and so on, then I think many vendors would take that bet. I think many vendors would take that deal. That is not the deal that's being offered to them today. And so when I say account for size, that's roughly what I'm talking about there. You know, one follow up on that, which of course that makes a lot of sense, but is there also a little bait and switch potentially with the size of the contract? Because I know you guys, so you had the $100 million DIU award, and then you had a billion dollar SOCOM award. But these were, I think they were both structured as IDIQs. And the DIU report that came out actually said, you guys got a lot getting obligated to those contracts. But I hear a lot of contractors where it's, okay, I get a big IDIQ award, and maybe I'm willing, okay, I'm willing to give it up, but then they just give me a couple tasks. And I never actually got any of the value of the ceiling that was promised or anticipated. Yeah. And so these things get very complex very quickly. And I think this is why I'm not being overly prescriptive about the the kind of means. I think that it's important to be on the same page about the intent. The intent is to promote competition at the early phases of these solicitations, which is in the government's interest, and also to give the government the rights they need for production, program of record level amounts of investment. And I think we put three or four or five creative minds in a room and they'll be able to figure out a way to do it that addresses some of the things you've raised, right? Like on dollars obligated versus kind of options and so on and so forth. So I still think if we make that intent our goal, then we can come up with very easily, I think, actually, with a a structure that achieves that. And we really need to get used to experimenting with these things where if it doesn't work, we switch it. We change a few words here and there. And we incrementally improve it. What I'm saying about technology also has to be true about acquisition, where acquisition rules need to be flexible. You need to be able to come up with iterations based on things that change in the market and so on as well. So let's move on to one of the other levers that you talked about here. And throughout your article, actually, there's a lot of things that when I read them, I was like, man, I just never thought of it like that before. You know, like industry, we tend to think of industry being like, Oh, let me just have that unique widget, right? Like you just said, so I can just lock in the government, win this program of record and never let them go of it. But then you point out it should be in the interest of industry to actually achieve interoperability so that they can sell that Navy bespoke thing 
and not make it really that bespoke, make it modular and be able to sell to the army and other customers. So what's up with that? And what's describe this, define the scope. What does that mean? This is a really good one. I think it's a really low hanging fruit. So I think by default, I think software data rights should be tailored to the specific program or use case rather than to the entire federal government for any use. And right now, the way it works, if I do a pilot with the third wing of the Air Force or something to install like some software on some thing that they're doing, and I give them rights to that software, what I'm actually doing is giving those rights to the entire federal government forever. And in theory, what could happen is that when I want to sell the same thing or something derived from that thing to the army or to a different part of the Air Force or to the Navy, then they can say, look, the federal government's already paid for this thing, so you don't get to charge us for it. Uh, And we own the data rights, and here's why. I say in theory because in practice it doesn't work that way. The Navy actually doesn't care what the Air Force is doing, and the Army doesn't care what the Navy is doing. It's quite depressing, actually. There's a lot of overlapping work. The bureaucratic obstacles to actually the government efficiently using things they acquired in one branch and one part of a branch for another branch, even if the use is like obvious, uh, are, are extremely high. And so this ends up being a thing that scares away a lot of vendors, but shouldn't because in practice, like there's probably very little risk of their stuff being reused in that way. So my, my proposal in the, in, in the piece is let's scope these data rights to the agency or the contract or the project where the data rights are relevant, where the technology is being developed. So if I'm building you a a piece of software for your ship, your real concern is that I go out of business in two years or I try to raise my prices too high in two years and you can't use that software for your ship again. You can't switch vendors and you're just forced to either run a whole new solicitation or to pay me more. That's a legitimate interest if you're the government. And I think the way to solve that is to say, hey, as your software applies to this ship and this use case and this project, we have these broader data rights where, look, we can switch vendors, we can give your source code as long as it's specific to this use or whatever for that specific project. And in my view, that gets most government agencies like 99% of what they want. I don't think the Air Force contract officer who's asking for unlimited rights actually cares about getting full value for some future army contract officer who's acquiring a similar capability. I think they care about being able to maintain their ship or whatever, their plane or whatever, and not being locked into this vendor for that project. So I think the government gets most of what they want. From the vendor side, it's a lot less scary to be like, yes, the government will have my source code as long as they can only use it for this one ship, for this one contract, then the, the kind of blast radius, the kind of collateral damage from this thing going awry is pretty low and manageable. And you're gonna see a lot more vendors participating. So now to get to your actual question is, I also think there is a huge virtue to creating narrowly scoped data rights because it creates this incentive for vendors to build something for the third wing of the whatever Air Force. And then they wanna sell that same capability to like the fourth wing and they want to sell it to the Navy or they want to sell it to the Army Air Wing. And in, those incentives mean that they will make that software highly interoperable. They will have incentives to build a kind of economies of scale across these things. They'll have incentives to have a shared code base that they're continuously improving that can serve many different customers, a diverse array of customers 
It will incentivize the creation of APIs to work with systems across diverse customer bases. And you end up with a much more robust and expansive and extensible and less locked in, ironically, product if you narrow the scope and let vendors to sell piecemeal things. And that's very much a, a inherent feature of software. But again, to, to, I think that is the important takeaway here is that software is just different. The reason the software titans of our age have become so valuable and have done so well is largely because they have one shared code base that they're selling across many different customers. And this feels bad to the DOD because they're saying you're making money selling the same thing to five different people. How is that fair? One, I would say there's no fairness in the market. The market's the market. It's correct. It gets you the outcomes you want, so you should do it. But also it is fair. It's a lot of work to maintain a shared code base. And third, it sets up these very strong incentives to have heavy interoperability across these customers. And really what you want, what we want the DOD, in my view, to go towards is an incentive structure where we do have increasingly robust shared code bases that are either vendor owned or government owned. If they're vendor owned with many kind of strings attached to make sure the government's not locked in. For, for kind of its legitimate interests. But you want these shared code bases that are constantly iterated on and made interoperable across many different systems. That's what's worked in, in the commercial industry. And I think that there's no reason to believe that it should be different on the government side. Yeah, it, it feels like that's like unintuitive to defense people. I want to pay for it once. I want to share it across the whole enterprise. And then you don't realize, oh, the vendors are just going to stovepipe it to the degree possible and stop they you are, from doing yeah. that. Unintended consequences. And that's consequences. what's happened. Yeah, and that's what's <laughs> happened. I think we don't need, it's not a hypothetical. The current status quo is every vendor has the incentive to stovepipe and create a bespoke piece of both software and hardware and system for an agency so that when they go sell it to the other agency, they have it has to look very different so they can sell it again without being hit with data rights or pricing kind of problems. And so let's just stop the performance theater and say, we're gonna scope this down just to our use case. I think the government also gets a benefit because they can negotiate a lower price, but let the vendors treat the Department of Defense as a marketplace where they can take a system that works for one subpart of the Navy and, and sell it to another subpart of the Navy, the same system with minimal modifications and make that thing interoperable across all these different devices, all these different systems, all these different users, you end up with a very robust set of products at the end of that if the commercial industry is any kind of sign of that. Yeah, and of course the government also has its predilections towards stovepiping. I have my program, my cost schedule technical, that's all I care about. Like. You you go stay with your program. What's I gotta happening do my- and what's happening there, and I think if there's a, a theme to this kind of discussion we've been having is it's not that people are ill-intentioned. It's that they have the wrong incentive. There is externalities to their actions because each program cares about their program is maximizing the thing for their program. And what they're doing is creating a marketplace that is N equals one, two, three, instead of a marketplace that's N equals 10, 20, 30, which is what we need to move to the next phase for the Department of Defense. Yeah, it's interesting. This strategy here almost sounds like it's really addressing some of this technical lock-in and interoperability without a top-down JADC2 mandate as to what exactly what standards the industry shall use. But what other parts of addressing technical lock-in, we have this traditional 
government always gets access to form, fit, function, and omit data. What do you recommend further on the, the technical lock-in front here? Yeah, and to use another imperfect analogy to the commercial market, the internet has centralized open protocols that are heavily defined, but also has an incredibly dynamic market of private industry building kind of unique applications that use those protocols. And no one would say that there's an in the internet. It's the least locked in environment that's existed in humanity. The switching, there are switching costs, obviously. You can come up with counterexamples, but relative to everything else in the world, the internet has the fewest switching costs where you can find an alternative to almost anything that you want on the internet more quickly than anywhere else in human history. I think there's a version of that, again, imperfect analogies, but there's a version of that also is true for government. And I think that there's a version of omit data of uh, and so on that where the government defines some common protocols and standards and shares them with vendors and makes it very easy for vendors to build to those standards and also requires vendors to build to those standards thereby making it easy for new entrants to make things that are relevant. An anecdote that I will tell about this is that there are technical standards that are associated with systems that are highly inaccessible to vendors because they're either locked behind uh, kind of proprietary information of other vendors or because they're classified, the standards themselves, and very few vendors can then get access to them. And those kinds of practices make interoperability a much bigger challenge for the government. And data rights, this is the key piece, data rights doesn't solve those. Standard setting solves those. Forcing vendors to provide certain levels of interoperability in the way that you structure your requirements for solicitations solves those. But those are all technical fixes. They're not legal or data right fixes. So part of my point in the article, there's a lot of ways to address lock-in, which is one of the core kind of motivators for more expansive data rights that don't even involve touching anyone's IP. Yeah, and let's real quick, let's wrap up on the last two points, allowing vendors to propose alternative contract structures and weighing the costs. Yeah, and so I think these two go together. I think that there is a lot of hidden trade-offs that are being made when the government just insists on broad data rights. Uh, and there's a lot of hidden costs to those that insistent. And any kind of new category of data rights that we experiment with should make those trade-offs transparent. Understanding that we'll still make the wrong trade-offs sometimes, but at least we should go through the exercise of saying this contract structure, this data right structure will have these consequences. We're fine for this kind of system. We're just going to eat that cost and, and we're going to do it anyways. And like that exercise is extremely valuable. And I think we should force acquisition officials to do it. So explore, allow vendors to propose alternative contract structures. And I think the question comes up when I talk about these trade-offs, well, like, how are we going to do this research? The answer is easy. Have the vendors do it for you. It's part of the solicitation project. Have them propose different contract structures and the benefits and costs of each. And then you take as your action to evaluate some of these and discount them or give weight to them. Let's go through a good faith kind of exercise of measuring different acquisition and contract structures against each other. One that's the rage right now is as a service or contractor-owned, contractor-operated, and there's a lot of different variations on these. And often there's a trade-off inherent in doing a as-a-service kind of SaaS-looking thing versus the alternative. And often the cost trade-off is you get something quicker, there's less maintenance costs, the upfront cost is going to be lower, 
but maybe over 10 years, the, your total cost of ownership might be higher if you continue the as a service thing. So that forces you as the acquisition official to decide whether speed to field is important to you or total cost over 10 years is important to you. It may be that you're willing to spend more over 10 years to get the capability in six months and to have no development risk and no maintenance cost and not to have to maintain server farms and not to have to hire kind of programmers and security people. Maybe that's worth it to you. And so I think you should ask vendors to tell you why their model, their proposed model is good or why it's bad and actually make that part of your acquisition strategy is analyzing those and making those trade-offs. And the way the cost, not just the benefits of data rights, really is speaking to that as well. I think data rights should be always thought of as a trade-off. They should never be thought of as anything other than a trade-off. There's always a cost, period, to greater data rights. Many times those costs will be worthwhile. There may be systems where we just need all the data rights from the get-go, and we're just we understand what the costs are, and we're just going to do it. Great. Write it out and tell us what the costs are. Sign your name on the line saying, I'm okay with those costs. That is the correct way to run you know, an organization efficiently and wisely. But in many other cases, I think, we're losing value because people aren't owning the decisions that they're making. They're just saying, we need all the things, we need all the rights, and they're not left holding the bag when they only get one response and they end up with a cost plus contract where they own all the data rights, but they're five years over budget, five years over schedule, and they don't have a deployable capability. And you and I could both probably off the top of our heads name five or six programs where that's been the case. And like the person making that data rights call is just not left holding the bag on that when they were part of the kind of series of decisions that, that led to that outcome. So I'm saying, put it on them to think about this, to make the trade-offs explicit and to own the decisions they're making. And I think we will get better outcomes at the end of the day. Those outcomes will not necessarily be that the government gets fewer data rights. They'll just be that we're making better trades that hopefully result in better technology for the Department of Defense. Yeah, totally. The I guess another part of that speed to field, as you've intimated there, and reliance on contractor-funded efforts is that by narrowing that cycle time, you actually know who's accountable for what and who you don't stretch that whole thing out. And now you had the successive KOs and they've all no one's accountable for any of it. Actually, I want to circle back on the asset service. You brought that up. The SOCOM effort that you guys uh, were awarded for one billion. There was a little segment in there. It said that the counter UAS contract was looking at stuff as a service. And I was like, what does that actually mean in practice here? Like in terms of the contract, I think it was still an IDIQ contract. How was that being managed? And what does as a service for counter UAS? We're used to it for cloud and there's pretty established there. What would that look like for counter UAS or some of these other kind of real world things? Yeah, without speaking about a specific contract, but we have sold hardware systems and capabilities as a service throughout the DoD. And the DoD has really actually appreciated and doubled down on this concept. And what it actually looks like is not that complicated. It's even with cloud, you're actually paying for hardware, right? There's no kind of ethereal cloud. It's like server farms that Amazon or whoever is maintaining and they're doing physical things and they have humans walking through them. You just get the outcome, which is you can store your stuff and you can access it and you get compute and so on. And it's very similar to that. It's you agree on SLAs, you agree on capabilities, 
and you hold us responsible for achieving those SLAs and those capabilities. Sorry, what's a SLA? Service level agreement? Service levels, yeah. We will detect XYZ. We will respond in XYZ time and the system will achieve XYZ outcomes. And so what we, um, what makes us, is it like on a, what kind of basis? Like every time, is it on a per minute basis or like a per intercept basis? What is the, I guess the structure of the service? Yeah. It's probably complicated. I'm sure. I'm sure it's complicated, right? It doesn't have to be right. I think you can have, let's just talk about counter UAS in the abstract. You can have, you can say, Hey, I want a system that can defend a base. That's this size from this kind of threat that could detect the threats from this distance and that can counter threats in these four ways. And that it'll have a 98%, 99% uptime, that it will operate in an expeditionary environment, that it will only require one user to maintain. And so you can start defining these conops relative to the needs of the customer. And the difference between the as a service model and more traditional models is you hold us to those outcomes. It's up to us to achieve them. If we want to surge and have 100 engineers sprinting for two weeks to, to get through something, you don't get a bigger bill. But if we find a way to become really efficient and we make a higher profit margin as a result, that's also our problem. And everyone's happy. And I think that's the virtue of the as-a-service model, which is like it's really high accountability. It's like these are objectives. We are paying for the objectives. We are paying for the outcomes. We are paying for the... Yes, it's not like how many drones you shot down. It's really like we're paying for the capability. So often we call it capability as a service because you're defining the service, you're defining the the thing you're buying in terms of a capability, and you have ways of measuring that capability. And we don't get paid if we don't offer the capability. But if we offer the capability and if we do it efficiently, we get rewarded. And I think that sets up an incentive structure that's highly accretive to creating like very dynamic environment because, hey, the other feature of as a service contracts that you've probably seen in the cloud context and elsewhere is they tend to, you can really start playing as the government contractors against each other. You can say, okay, deploy your as a service thing. If you don't, haven't met your outcomes in two or three years uh, or in one or two years, I'm going to on-ramp someone else to do a bake-off and to deploy their stuff and see if they can do it. Now, think about how different that scenario is if you purchase the bare metal, the networking, if you hired some FS field service representatives that you're paying hourly to maintain these systems, and then the prospect of on-ramping another contractor is like what, what to do what? You have to buy more metal from them? Or are you going to transfer the rights to the metal you bought to them? Or are you going to start a whole new solicitation? It gets very ugly very quickly and you get stuck in these sunk cost fallacies and all the other kind of poor incentives that we see throughout DOD. And so the as a service model, in our view anyways, gives you a way to hack that as an acquisition official. You get something fielded quickly. You hold the contractor responsible for the services. A lot of the bureaucracy that is necessary to do things like, hey, we need an extra computer to run this is invisible to you. It's just handled by the contractor right? Like I don't have to ask DOD for permission to buy another computer to run the kind of DevSecOps part of this. I just have to meet certain security requirements. And if I have to buy 70 computers to do it, I go buy them myself. It happens very quickly. Conversely, if I can run it very efficiently, then I get rewarded. And that kind of incentive structure 
has worked well for our customers. It's worked well for us. It's not limited to software cloud. We can do it across a number of different kind of capability sets. Probably has its limits. I don't know if you can have missiles at a service or, or stuff like that. You probably there, there's limits to it. But I think we can do a lot more with it than we're currently doing. And to, to put a like positive note on it, actually, I've seen for, in our experience has been DoD's been very forward thinking about the customers we've worked with, in particular in the special forces community, have been very forward forward thinking about this stuff. And I think it's because they have a real need and an immediate need. Great. So real quick here, as we wrap up. If you guys are building this capability and selling it as a service, you also talked about how you're building open for government. Do they have like specific standards that they request in the solicitation or how do they orchestrate if they want like a new module from a different company and pay that that separate company or do they have to route everything through you guys and then anything you want to wrap up on? Yeah, so I'll say two things. Just to go back to the GPR discussion where I said, let's put a pin in kind of how we handle it. We handle it exactly how I described in my piece in our conversation, which is that we're coming to the table with incredible amount of private R&D, and we expect the government to recognize that and not ask us to give all that up for every little pilot that we do to show, show our wares, to show how we can meet their needs. However, we come to the table from the very beginning with the understanding and the promise to the government that if for a particular solicitation, they commit to us and we end up being kind of the, the solution they choose, we will give the government the rights they need to, to run a, a military system, which often are going to be greater than the rights that a commercial enterprise or consumer would expect in the same circumstances. And so that also goes for interoperability and so on. Like a lot of the systems and services we're providing, part of the capability that we're providing as a service is interoperability. And I think interoperability gets thrown around a lot. It's in every vendor's deck, but it actually does have a real meaning. And for the types of technologies we're talking about, the way you achieve interoperability is through a software baseline and a software system that makes it very easy to integrate other systems. And that includes other software systems, right? So all these things have to work together. No, we are not a kind of centralized repository where the government has to go to us to do things. We just happen to be, in our view, the easiest way you get a new system integrated into your kind of broader suite and the easiest and cheapest way to have an effective integrated capability. And so if the government agrees with that, they tend to use us to do that. If they don't, we can integrate with another centralized system and, and it works just as well. But our entire philosophy and business is based on being able to integrate these different systems together very quickly. And the reason we are fast is because that is effectively a software problem. The reason we can have our submarines integrate with our towers, integrate with our group one drones, integrate with our group two drones, integrate with our you know, tube launch drones is because we've been through this exercise ourselves. We get rewarded if all our things work together. And so we've really built that muscle. And I think the key takeaway, I think that's relevant to our discussion is that is a software problem. Integration of different systems on a single plane of glass or across communications platforms and so on, those are software problems. And so you need to really have the facility to build and deliver advanced software to do those well and efficiently. Babak Siavashi, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks, Eric. It was great being here. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.